How you doing? Good. Uh, my name is Joe. I'm uh, one more, like, like Kyle mentioned, I'm one of the pastors here. I, I work with college-age and young adults. I, uh, we helped start a ministry here at New Hope called The Greenhouse. Super excited about it. Yeah, thanks. So if you're uh, college-age or young adult and however you want to define that, come talk to me afterward. If you're not connected with us, we'd love to help you get connected. We got the chance to serve again this summer with a mission that we're involved with in, uh, in upstate New York. We work at this, um, this YMCA resort. We take a bunch of college students up there. We had so many awesome opportunities to interact uh, in a very relational uh, way with uh, young people and the gospel this, this, uh, this summer. And so if we're going to talk more about that as uh, things unfold here, but we'd love to have you consider doing that with us uh, in the future. Let's pray and then we'll dive in. Father, we thank you so much uh, for your word today. We thank you that we get a chance to, to read and, 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 and learn from you. And that's our desire, that you would teach us. God, you'd teach us your ways. You'd, you'd help us to walk in your truth and you'd lead us. And so we look to you right now and we pray that you would, you would have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a couple years ago, um, a band called The Little, Little Big Town came out with a song called Better Man. And, and this is the first verse of the song. They say, I know I'm probably better off on my own than loving a man who didn't know what he had when he had it. And I see the permanent damage you did to me. Never again, I just wish I could forget when it was magic. I wish it wasn't 4 a.m. standing in the mirror saying to myself, you know you had to do it, I know. The, the bravest thing I ever did was run. See, relationships have the potential to bring awesome blessing and tremendous hurt into our lives. Maybe you've tasted one or the other or both. Maybe you felt the sting of the pain of what this song is talking about. The line in the song that haunts me is, that, is the line that says, and I see that permanent damage you did to me. And the reason it haunts me is because it lines up a little too close to what I've seen over the last 25 years of just being around people. I've seen relationships just explode and implode. And then I've seen all the, the hurt so God designed sex and relationships in such a way that when we follow him, we experience blessing. And when we go our own way, we experience hurt and damage. And so today we're continuing in 1 Thessalonians. As, as Mark's been working his way through the book of Romans, I've been kind of plotting my way through this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And what we see in this, in this letter is just amazing. This church went from worshiping idols. There was a major turning that happened. They, 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 they started to follow Jesus. And um, as a part of that, they, just, they had this beautiful repentance that was felt all over the, the world around them. And so what, what happened is after that, they, uh, they got um, connected in this church and they began to grow and they continued to walk in the gospel as they grew up in their faith. And so Paul starts out 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, this way. He says this, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. See, most of the times when we read the New Testament, we really, what we see is, we see Paul writing to correct people. He was either correcting them in the way that, that they were teaching or the way they were, they were living. But here he's just saying, hey, you're doing great. Keep it up. I just want to encourage you and cheer you on to keep moving in this direction. And so he continues, verse 2, he says, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, this is pretty awesome. Paul just flat out tells us what God's will is. 
I mean, there's a lot of people that spend a lot of their life trying to figure out what God's will is. And most of the time when people are struggling with God's will, they're wrestling with some of the, the bigger questions of life, right? Like, what should I do with my life? What major should I choose? Well, what, you know, um, who should I marry? Well, what vocation? Should, should I stay in the vocation I'm in? Or should, I, should I change vocations? Where should I live? But the interesting thing about the will of God is that it's not that difficult to know the vast majority of it. Most of the time when we talk about God's will, we have 90% or more of God's will mapped out for us already. And, and the 90% that's God's will for my life is the same 90% that's God's will for your life. It's right here. God's given it to us in, in, his, in this book, in the, in the Bible. And he, he hasn't tried to hide it from us. And so the first, the, the couple things that jump out of my mind that are God's will for every single person here is that first, it's God's will that you would be reconnected with him and you would be in a right relationship with him. You know, we're born into the world and we're separated from God. We, and that's because of our sin. And the reality is that God recognized that he, he, he wanted us to be with him. So he sent his son to bleed and die on a cross, to, to really to pay the debt that we couldn't pay. And so his will is that you would put your faith in Jesus, that you would respond to what he did for you, and that you would be, uh, become his child. Okay, so that's, that's the first thing. The second thing we see really is that we have all kinds of teaching here that really gives us a really clear picture of what God wants for our lives. And so I read an article and I really liked the way the author talked about God's will. He said that following the 90% we know helps us to have clarity about the 10% that we don't know. But then he clarified that even if we don't get a greater understanding about the 10% that we don't know, following what we do know is what's called faithfulness. And that's what we're called to. God wants us to pay attention to his will in the mundane Stuff like respecting our managers, honoring our parents, showing up for work on time, getting along with your roommates, loving your wife, respecting your husband, honoring your neighbor with the way that you talk about him or her, caring for the marginalized in our culture, being a person of integrity, stuff like not lying and cheating. That's God's will for your life. It's not something that's hidden or hard to figure out. Again, it's right here in black and white. And that makes you wonder, if you don't pay attention to God's will in the stuff that's been revealed to you, what makes you think that you're going to be attuned to discerning his will in the, in the stuff that you don't see clearly? I like the way one commentary writer put it. He says this, I sometimes wonder why people would seek the will of God at a pivotal moment in life if they've been ignoring God's will in their daily lives. Should God speak, would such a person listen? He says, I'd rather doubt it. One who is not faithful in the small moments is unlikely to be faithful in the great. So jumping back into verse three, God's will for your life is that you experience sanctification. Sanctification is this big theological word, but it's really kind of, it's pretty simple. It, 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 it kind of, it's connected and related to the word saint. And both words have to do with holiness. And so to sanctify something is to set it apart for special use. It's, it's to sanctify a person is, is, to, is to make him or her holy. Another definition I really like is, is this. It's living in a manner consistent with the character and the commands of God. It means to grow up in your faith, to become more like Jesus in your life. And so God's will is that you 
and I become like his son. Paul further defines what sanctification is in this verse. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, the Greek word for sexual immorality is that word pornea, which means all sexual interaction outside of a one-man, one-woman covenant marriage relationship for life. So that means for us, as we want to pursue God's will for our lives, we're to avoid all things sexual outside of marriage. And so for those of you who have young children in this room, I'm going to talk about a couple of things that are more like a PG-13, you know, uh, level. And, And so this might be a time you might just want to cover, you know, their ears for just, it's about 45 seconds here. Or you might have some very interesting conversation over lunch with your kids. I'm not going to be crass here, but I just want to clarify because I think there's a lot of confusion in this area. In the, in the last 25 years-ish, there's been, in my opinion, a growing confusion about what this word pornea includes. Okay, and, and, and for many of you, you know, maybe you could even give me an education that this goes way back beyond that. Maybe, maybe it goes, you know, probably all the way back to the fall. But um, I think, it, I, I mark it as around the time of the Monica Lewinsky, President Bill Clinton scandal. And this isn't a political statement here at all. This is just saying, I think this is where maybe some of our confusions come from. Clinton made the comment that he didn't have sexual relations with Monica, even though she engaged with, again, cover your kids' ears, oral sex with, um, with him. I think I wasn't a Christian at that time, but that was still one of the most um, confusing things I'd ever heard in all my life. And so you could see where that, that, could, that could create some confusion. So just for, for clarity, when Paul used that word pornea, he was referring to all things sexual. Again, another chance to kind of cover ears, it included oral and anal sex, sexual intercourse, porn and masturbation. That word is an all-inclusive term. Okay, so we got it out there. But to know what Paul is talking about here is really important. But we got to know why. Why would God say his will for you is that you avoid pornea altogether? Why are all things sexual off limits outside of this one man, one woman covenant marriage relationship? So here's why all things sexual are out. We need to see the bigger picture of why God created sex and our sexuality and how living within God's plan for sex actually blesses us. It's a blessing. The first is that God created sex for a purpose. It's not just intended for pleasure, although that was definitely part of his, of his design. But he had something bigger in mind. He wanted to actually create oneness. He designed it to, to join two people together in one. Genesis 2, 24 says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and, be, and, hold, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So sex creates oneness. It's more than physical. It's emotional and and spiritual. And so when we engage in sexual stuff outside of a one man, one woman covenant marriage relationship, we actually not only hurt ourselves, but we hurt the other person as well. But it's interesting that within marriage, sex is actually amazing. It, It actually brings health to our lives and our marriages. But outside of marriage, it's just incredibly destructive. And again, the reason for that comes back to design. Sex was designed for a purpose. It was designed to bond one man and one woman together. It doesn't discriminate. It will create a bond wherever and whenever it's, it's used, whenever it's experienced. So probably, you probably have seen this illustration or maybe heard it before, but sex is often described to as glue. You take 
two pieces of paper and you glue them together. And when that relationship's over, the two pieces are torn apart and there's a mess. That's why when Taylor Swift wrote that song, Better Man, she talked about permanent damage because in a breakup, especially where the couple's engaged in pornea, there's a tearing away that happens and it hurts. It feels like permanent damage. Now, if you're familiar with Taylor Swift, all of her songs pretty much talk about breakups, right? And, and, and the reason so many people connect with what she writes is because that's what they've experienced in their lives. And so if you were to flip over to another section of the New Testament, you would see an actual, a biblical explanation for the hurt and the pain that happens when someone engages with anything sexual outside of marriage. It might be one of the most sobering passages, in, in my opinion, in all of the New Testament. I've spent more time thinking about this passage in the last couple of years. And um, let's look at it. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. He says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So what does it mean to sin against your own body? See, that's, that's what I've been wrestling with. What does that mean? Well, on the very surface, it means that you damage yourself. And that damage is bigger than maybe contracting some sort of disease. Engaging in sexual stuff actually affects our entire self. Because we were made as people whose lives can't be compartmentalized. There isn't my sex life and then the rest of my life. We're, we're just, it's all interconnected. I like the way Warren Wearsby talks about this issue. He's, um, and I tell you, this quote has probably given me more insight into what Paul was writing than anything else that I've read in, in, in the last 10 years. He says this. He says, when a man and a woman join their bodies, the entire personality is involved. So your culture has told you that it's, it's just an activity. But what we're seeing here is it's, it's not just an activity. It's a much deeper experience, he goes on. He says, a oneness that brings with it deep and lasting consequences. Paul warned that sexual sin is the most serious sin a person can commit against his body, for it involves the whole person. That was that verse we just looked at. Sex is not just a part of the body. Being male and female involves the total person. Therefore, sexual experience affects the total personality. So when we look at the pain and damage today in the area of relationships, at least some of that could be avoided if people would pursue God's will for their lives, sexual purity. And I just wonder, and this is just me, this is just me sitting in my office thinking about what we see all around us. But I wonder how much this stuff affects our brain chemistry and our mental health as well. When Paul says sexual sin is a sin against the body, how much has our sexual sin affected our mental well-being? We're complexly crafted creations made in the image of God. And I wonder if as a culture we've added to our own mental struggles because of the way that we've pursued freedoms in this arena of our lives. Okay, before we move on, I gotta talk about one other reason why sex is such a big deal. God made it, obviously, we just talked about this, to bond one man and one woman together. But he also designed it as a spiritual picture of the gospel message. Ephesians 5, he quotes back to Genesis 2 and he says, therefore a man again shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. 
This mystery is profound, right? We're thinking it has to do with the consummation that happens on the wedding day. But Paul says, no. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So sex makes a man and woman one. But it's also a picture of the gospel. God wanted to take something with profound mystery, the gospel message, and give us a tangible illustration. Uh, recently, I read a book um, called Sex, Dating, and Relationships, and I've got actually about five or six copies up here. One of the best books I've read in, in um, and I'm not in the uh, place where I'm actually thinking about dating. I've been married for 22 years. I'm, I'm good. I've got a great wife, I'm, and I'm going to date her. Um, but I highly recommend it, even if you're not in that, you know, that phase of dating. It could be really helpful for some people that are, you're, maybe you're involved with. And I like what the authors say. They, this is what um, they say. They say, as, as creatures that exist in the image of God, Nothing comes closer to the genuine, all-satisfying experience of God than an intimate relationship with one who exists in that image. It's the same idea that caused one man, one person to say that a man knocking on the door of a brothel is a man looking for God. They go on and say this sexual oneness within marriage was created by God to serve as a foreshadowing of the spiritual oneness that would exist between Christ and the church. And so in the sexual union of a husband and a wife, we have this living experiential illustration of the gospel message, completely accepted, completely known, completely loved. And because sex is a picture of the relationship Jesus has with his church, it's imperative that we protect what God has made sacred. Okay, so Paul goes on, verse four and five. He says this, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And so what Paul's saying here is that the gospel and our knowledge of God, it should actually have an impact on our outward actions. Paul never intended to make this, this process of sanctification like a do-it-yourself project or something that you, you, just, you just white knuckle. No, be, but because we've been spiritually reborn, that because of the Spirit of God, He's come into us and He's regenerated us, we ought to be different people because of the Holy Spirit's work in us. Not necessarily perfect people, but, but different. That we would know how to control our own bodies in holiness and honor. So what does that mean? See, I think a lot of self-control doesn't happen actually in the moment, but it takes place way before you're in temptation's grip. You don't think your self-control is going to shine when you're laying next to someone who's naked. No, you learn to control your body in holiness and out of way before you're in a sexually alluring situation. You don't go and hang out with somebody of the opposite gender. You know, maybe they're house-sitting you know, for a friend. You don't go and um, do sleepovers with boyfriends and girlfriends. Lying in a bed with somebody who's of the opposite sex who you aren't married to is like playing with fire. You don't go on business trips with, with the opposite sex without thinking things through, handling it with great care and accountability. You don't find yourself alone in the backseat of a car at a drive-in movie theater as if drive-in movie theaters existed today. And so this is the principle. Be wise. Be wise in the way that you interact with each other. 
Don't hang out with somebody of the opposite sex behind closed doors who isn't your husband or your wife. If you want to get to know somebody, do it in public. Go to Starbucks. You know, to hang out in a group, you can eliminate a lot of hurt and pain by just being wise in the way you operate with each other. How about this one? You don't have Tinder on your phone. I have, I know many Christ followers who have Tinder on their phone. I don't get it. How is Tinder going to help you pursue the, the will of God in your life? Let's take a step away from Tinder. What if I made it more general? Anything that you have on your phone or your computer that's sexual in nature, you delete. You, know, you put boundaries up and you invite others to, to provide accountability and help you in this area. The bottom line is don't put yourself in compromising positions because you and I were not strong enough to fight sexual temptation. And Paul, in that passage that we just looked at, 1 Corinthians 6, right before that, that verse, he says, the only thing that you can do in that situation is get out of there, run, flee. That's how we learn to control our bodies in holiness and honor. Well, I love that phrase, that little phrase, holiness and honor. The Greek word for holiness is the same word Paul uses earlier in this passage for sanctification, and it's hagiasmos. And the sense of the word is this. It's just someone who's becoming more distinct, more devoted, more pure. And so Paul, he's used that word twice now. And what we're going to see, he's developing this theme. He always is trying to make sure that he's just really clear with the people he's writing to. So as he's writing to these Thessalonian believers, he wants to make it really clear. God's will is for your life is this. That word honor, I really like that. And I think at, at some kind of um, base level in our culture, some sort of foundational level, I think where we're at and why we struggle in our culture is because we've lost a sense of honor with each other. When we honor ourselves and others, what we're doing is we're showing respect for and value who we are and who the other person is. And, and someone fearfully and wonderfully made. Someone who was created in the image of God, someone who was created with infinite value and worth, someone who's worth the blood of Jesus being shed for them. Do you believe that about yourself? You know, that you bear the image of God and that you are someone who is of highest value and worth. So when we live out honor toward ourselves and others, we're, we're using our bodies for the purposes that they were created for. They were created, you were created to, to exalt and, and, and worship God and glorify him. Honor is really the opposite of degrading. And so when we honor um, our bodies by avoiding immorality, we honor the God who made us. And as we honor the image of God, and, and we also, we honor the image of God in the other person as well. Okay, so back to verse five. You'll notice most of the time when I teach um, anything that Paul writes, it's just a run-on sentence. If Paul were to write this in the, my high school, he would have gotten marked down for it. But anyway, we're picking up in verse five here. He says this, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And so Paul says that who, how we live actually reflects whose we are. And he isn't condemning, I think, when he's saying this. What he's really just trying to make is just a clear point that if you live out passion and lust in your life, there's a, there's a chance that you don't know God. Because lust and love are very different. I mean, lust is about taking. Love is about giving. Lust is, is inherently selfish. And, and love is selfless. Lust is, is, a, is all about me. 
And, and love is about the other person. It's, I want the best for you. So how we operate in this area proclaims really who we belong to. Verse six, Paul goes on, run on sentence, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. And I think this is where things get pretty wild for me. See, the context of this entire section of scripture is sanctification, right? And, and even more specifically, it's, it's within sanctification, sexual purity. We just have gone over that for whatever, 20 minutes. So when Paul says that no one transgressed and wronged a brother in this matter, the matter he's talking about is sexual in nature. So here's the boom. I think here's where the mic gets dropped. Here's where things gets real, get, get really real. When you do anything physical with someone who you aren't married to, you are actually wronging that person's future spouse or their current spouse. So look around you. If you're single here, if you choose to get married, some might choose to, um, to you know, live out the gift of singleness. But if you choose to get married, you will one day belong to another person. And if you're currently married here, you you already belong to another person. That's, go home and look at that. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so as we interact with each other, we need to operate with such integrity because we don't want to wrong our brothers and sisters in Jesus. But this is so intense. You've got to hear this. Paul says that when you wrong a brother in this manner, the Lord is an avenger in all these things. I, I want to... I want to experience God in my life. I want to experience God's mercy. I want to experience the love of God. I want to experience, you know, the grace of God. But I don't want to experience this in my life. I don't want to experience God as an avenger. See, what catches me off guard here a little bit when, when Paul's writing this is he goes from all this encouragement. Hey, I just want to encourage you to move in this direction. And he kind of goes, and then all of a sudden he just talks about the Lord being an avenger. And I'm like, well, what happened here? I just think Paul is, he just sees this really clearly. About two years ago, I got to um, meet with a couple and I, I got to hear their story over dinner. This guy's name is Kyle and, and he dated a woman for three years, kind of at the end of his high school and the beginning of his college. And, um, and then he met and married his wife. And so in those three years of dating, he didn't even kiss this other woman, which I know is like, oh, they were just really good friends. They had the highest integrity in their relationship. And for whatever reason, they just, the, the relationship just ended. But as he's telling me the story in front of his wife, there wasn't any shame or blushing. You know, if they were out and about and they ran across his old girlfriend, there wouldn't be any awkwardness. Like, oh, you know. I'm... The story gets better. Um, after meeting him a, a week later, I got to meet with the guy who eventually married his ex-girlfriend. You follow me? And, and the whole time, I know the backstory. Like I, and I'm crawling out of my skin with excitement as I'm thinking about this, this message. I'm thinking about this passage. And all I can think about is this guy, Kyle, is my new hero because he didn't wrong his brother. He didn't even know this dude, but he honored God. He honored the, the woman he dated. He honored himself. He honored his future wife. And he eventually... He, he honored his ex-girlfriend's future husband. Five people were affected by the choices that he made. And the, the same is true for you. At least five people are affected by the choices that you make. 
And so Paul ends this section like this, verse seven. He says, for God has, call, has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And check this out. This is the third time he uses this word, hagiosmos, the idea of sanctification and holiness. Paul brings closure by pointing you, us toward the positive. He doesn't give us a you shouldn't, but rather this is what God has called you to. We're blessed by the calling that God has placed on our life to move away from empty living and idolatry and toward becoming who we were created to be. You weren't designed to be immoral. You were designed. You're the work of a master craftsman. You were made in his image to reflect who he is to this world. And then what Paul does, is he just puts the final smack down. He said, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. In other words, if you blow off what Paul is saying to these people, you're not blowing Paul off, you're blowing God off. And if you consistently blow God off, you've got to wrestle with whether or not you really know him. Because when the Holy Spirit comes into your life and regenerates you and makes you spiritually alive, he changes your heart so that you will be receptive to his word and his work in your life. Okay, so I want to take a moment and I want to think application with you here. How can you and I cooperate with what God wants to do in your life as a result of hearing this? If God's will is that you be sanctified, that you become more like Jesus, and, and specifically that you pursue sexual purity, what might need to change? Where do you feel the most tension with what I'm talking about? Where do you feel the most internal resistance? That is where God wants to do his greatest work in you. If you're single in the area of your sexuality, God isn't withholding something good from you. He has an incredible, incredible gift, but it's, it's all about timing. You open the gift early and you spoil it. If you're married, you have one option as it relates to sexual activity, and that's your spouse. It's that black and white. Within the context of marriage, the gift makes oneness. It's worship. It's a living illustration of the gospel message. A couple things I want to end with here. First thing, if you've engaged in sex outside of marriage, you know that song that we, we talked about earlier talks about permanent damage? I disagree with that. I believe that God can heal. I believe that's his desire. He wants to put the pieces back together. That's what we see all over the place. He did that all over the place in the New Testament. He's doing that all over the place in our world today. But it won't be easy. I remember when I was a sophomore and I was weeping over all the things I had done before I became a Christian with my pastor. And I just remember thinking, will I ever feel whole in my life? And I remember listening to something somewhere on a cassette tape. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those before, but. And, and, and um, the, uh, the, the pastor that was speaking said something like, hey, however many years you've given to destroying your life, you need to give God at least that many years to heal you. And I would say that was about right. So if, if you're in the process, you know, of just kind of starting to think and process this through, and I could be of any help to you or kind of pointing you in, in a direction, come talk to me afterward. But this would be something that it would be good to talk to somebody else about. 
The second thing is if you're currently in a sexual relationship outside of marriage, my strong admission to you would be to stop. It won't be easy to do because, again, God created sex in, 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 to be pleasurable. And there's so much shame and hiddenness around this topic. But I would encourage you to, to talk about it with somebody else, to, to get help. Because I believe that if you put firm boundaries up in this, that it will end up being a blessing in your life. And then the third thing is I just encourage you aggressive accountability. I know it sounds so intense. Everything about this was so intense. I'm Italian. What'd you expect? <laughs> aggressive accountability is, is going to be essential in charting a new course. And so like, you know, I just think like, don't do this in your own strength. Don't strive in your own strength. Sexual purity is God's will for your life. He is going to give you the power to accomplish his will. And what I think that means is it doesn't mean that you just go off and try to figure this out on your own, but you partner with the, the church that you're involved in and you allow other people to come into your life and you see that as part of the Holy Spirit's work. And I think God wants us to learn how we can yield to him. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much again that we get to sit in the, the truth of the gospel this morning. That even in the midst of things that maybe we've been involved with that have, uh, have been outside of your will for our lives, that the, the truth of the gospel is that you accept us. That, we, that we're fully accepted. It's not begrudgingly that you accept us. You, you open your arms wide and say, you're mine. And so God, we just thank you for the truth of that. We ask that you would, would, would work in our lives, that you would move us in a different direction. That we wouldn't just be hearers today, but we'd be doers. God, give us very tangible things to do. Lord, help us not to be so smug as to think, ah, I got this down. Lord, I know I don't have this down. I know I need you. Thankful for what you've done in my life already, but God, I know that, that I'm, I'm, I've, got a, I've got a long way to go. And uh, again, I'm thankful that we get just the, the, uh, the promise that you're with us. You're going to walk with us and you're going to help us. We thank you for all that in Jesus' name. Amen.